0: The humble servant recalls being probed at his university finals on how France could emulate the German economic model. Three decades later, it seems most of Europe continues to look up to Berlin. True, for a few years in the late 1990s Germany was dubbed the sick man of Europe, but the apparent ease with which the Schröder government addressed the country's rigidities still constitutes a blueprint for structural reforms across the EU 20 years later. Admiration, however, is never far from envy and resentment. The European commentariat constantly oscillates between recommending other nations to be more like Germany and lamenting Berlin's shortcomings, in particular in European affairs. While we agree that the German government's response to the sovereign crisis of 2010-2012 has been too slow and hesitant, symmetrically we're often surprised by the lack of recognition of the number of red lines which ultimately Berlin accepted to cross. We also suspect that many European governments would have in fact resented the German leadership on these policies. Leading from behind was possibly the only realistic approach. As the Merkel era is drawing to a close, we take the occasion of the federal elections on September 26th to take a good look at three macroeconomic challenges facing Germany and their ramifications for the rest of Europe. The first is the deglobalization risk. While domestic demand has solidified in the last 15 years, once the correction in the post-unification drift in labor costs was achieved, exports continue to stand for a very high share of GDP for an economy of that size. German exporters have been focusing their efforts in the last decades on emerging markets, with China playing a key role. Yet, the era of politically blind trade policies is over, and the changeover in the US administration has not changed this state of affairs. Germany is being asked to choose sides in the big US-China rivalry. The second is the European economic integration process. The pandemic has precipitated decisions on debt mutualization, which would have probably taken years under normal circumstances. However, these new schemes, such as the Next Generation Initiative, are not designed to be permanent. The pandemic has also triggered the suspension of the EU's fiscal surveillance system, but beyond the ongoing emergency, Pressure is rising on a thorough overhaul of the framework. Attitudes in Berlin will largely determine the outcome of these two issues. The third is the green transition. Germany finds itself in the paradoxical situation of being very vocal on the need to reshape our economies towards a net-zero configuration and being one of the most carbon-intensive large countries in the EU, despite a costly shift towards renewable energy. Further progress may not come cheap, and requires a sizable uplift in public investment. In principle, the fiscal position of the country would allow this without too much strain, but the fiscal rules Germany has imposed onto itself, above and beyond the European ones, make this difficult, especially since a backlash is currently at play against some of the social reforms of the early 2000s, and calls for more comprehensive, but unavoidably more costly, welfare state are now rife. The three issues are of course intertwined. The border tax, which may not help matters with trade partners, is part and parcel of the EU's fiscal upgrade, as well as an essential tool in promoting global decarbonisation. The amount of flexibility on domestic budgetary rules may have a bearing on the future negotiations at the European level. True, Germany's political life remains far less strident than in many European countries, and its general prosperity probably means that nothing essential is at stake in these elections. But benign neglect is not an option. <music> to navigate this complicated seascape, we immediately thought about inviting Evelyn Ehrman, senior European economist at Bank of America. She has been educated both in Germany, at Frankfurt's Goethe Universität, as well as in France at Dauphine and at Paris School of Economics. She's now based in France, but has spent years in the UK. So she has this rare mix of first-hand knowledge and critical distance, which will help, I think, our audience to better understand the macro implications of the current political battle east of the Rhine. Hello, Evelyn. How are you?
1: Good morning. I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Thanks as well. for the introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, you know, disclaimer: we worked together for for several years. Um, uh, but I remember after meeting you for the first time thinking, well, you know, that's weird. I've just met a German economist who is not obsessed about inflation. Um, would you say it's a fair way to introduce you?
1: Um, I, well, It's not wrong. I would hope I have more characteristics than this one, but it's funny that you picked up on that one. I also remember that a few years down working together, it was you who actually forced me to dissect the labor unions deal from 2018, a bit panicky that inflation might be coming eventually. So uh, touche. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I guess it applies. I convinced you it wasn't coming, but it's fine.
0: Yeah, inflation obsessions can cross <laughs> yes. borders. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you a question, which is now customary on this podcast. Now I realize that you know, I don't think we've ever discussed this. Uh, why did you become an economist? And if you had not become an economist, what would you have done?
1: So the slope into economics was actually more accidental. I wanted to become an architect. Um, And then um, when I finished high school, I got nervous, which has a bit of a family background. And then I sat a whole bunch of university classes amongst which macro, uh, and I liked that one. So from then, it just went on and on and on. And then I ended up where I am now. So that also, I think, provides the answer to the Second part of the question, I would probably, if it had worked out, be an architect. And if so, then I would have hoped to be in probably urban space organization at the moment, which is eventually not that far away from economics in some aspects.
0: Yeah, you could have been into urban planning, this sort of thing. Exactly. Okay. Well, that makes makes a lot of sense. So very consistent. Mm-hmm. Um okay. Um obviously everyone is is obsessed with the polls at the moment, but you know, before we talk about you know the, the politics and the various combinations which could emerge from from these elections, I wanted to to go back a little bit in history to get a sense of you know, uh the the, the the travel uh of the German economy the last you know fifteen or twenty years I've I've tried to uh Sketched this out very customarily in my in my intro. But you know, um, could we could we talk a little bit about you know, where we stand now, um, fifteen twenty years after the, the Schröder reforms? Where where does the the German economy stand?
1: Yeah, um, I mean it's quite good. You pre warned me of that question. To be fair, I mean sixteen years are a very long time. A lot of things happened. We've gone through the global crisis. We've gone through the Euro area crisis, the refugee crisis, now the pandemic nuclear exit right after Fukushima. Um, we had now the decision to exit coal. So there is lots and lots of stuff that has happened during, well, during the era Merkel uh, from an economics perspective. Um, after the pandemic, I guess that's the point where we're at now. Uh, it feels a little bit like this pandemic has compressed the timeline for challenges that Germany w- was going to face anyway. This notoric weakness and domestic demand that has, as you mentioned earlier has been started to address um, with labor market the labor market becoming stronger with uh, wage growth picking up. you've seen some 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 better dynamics emerge here, but we still have the demographic problem that's going to kick in. We had very strong workers immigration years um, during and after the euro area crisis that have helped uh, but left on their own demographic Trends will move lower again. We also had the reminder in 2015 and perhaps even a little bit now that the exposure to China has increased and has helped German manufacturing grow market share in China and then grow with the Chinese economy. But every time something is going wrong uh, in the Chinese economy, like in 2015 with a weakness, then you feel it immediately uh, in German manufacturing. And the trade wars, which you also mentioned, we had entered the pandemic. After two years of manufacturing sector recessions in Germany, recession in Germany. That's that's quite big stuff that has already started. And the automobile sector has been on a downward trend pretty much since 2017. And if you look at current automobile production, it looks particularly weak. But if you would draw a linear, <laughs> really very much a line uh, since 2017 to levels today, it fits. Um so that's where we stand at the moment. I think <clears throat> there's a lot of Long-term challenges that we've been repeating for years would come at some stage in the future. They might all now have to be faced in a very short period of time. I think that's where we're standing at the moment. Let me pick on on,
0: on, on some, some some of these actually, and maybe start with you know, the, the great fear. I remember at the time of, of the trade war between China and the and the US two or three years ago. I mean, there I remember being in in, in discussions with people from from the BDE, for instance, and they were quite quite worried. Um as this, you know, the idea that maybe there's a deglobalization risk, is this triggering a sort of rethink of the overall German economic trajectory or, or, or strategy? Um, the idea that maybe there should be even more focus on on domestic demand that you know constantly relying on on new export markets is, 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 is maybe a more dangerous position than than what could have been, expected is it is there the beginning of, of a conversation on
1: this um trade wars or brexit actually too certainly have helped the realization that there is a very large export sector and that we depend on 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 the global setup i'm, I'm not quite sure i I'm, I'm totally convinced of the deglobalization theme it's extremely difficult to unwind that um so from that perspective you haven't seen at least in the data you haven't seen a lot of onshoring or reversal of trends that you have seen before. So there is a di- discussion on how you can organize things better. Um, but I'm not particularly sure that Germany is on the brink of revisiting its economic model uh, entirely and s- sort of getting away from the export orientation. You see that in the policy debate today competitiveness on export markets or competitiveness with other exporters is still one of the key elements in domestic policy discussions. It's a key element in labor unions' position when negotiating for wages. So all of these aspects, they're still very much dominant. It's a model that has grown, well, forever, almost, it feels. (laughs) So you you don't just stop that, right? So you, you continue within that model. I think the nuances have changed. But the, the the underlying export orientation of the economy remains.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that you know, why, why change a model, which has been so so you know, uh, efficient so so far. I guess it needs first to get into trouble to 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 create a rethink. And as you say, in the data, for now, nothing nothing is is, is happening much. Well,
1: it's crazy There's costly a, uh, too, no? I mean, that's the thing, and it's it's really 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 difficult to change an economic setup. I mean, you mentioned earlier you were quizzed on France. It's the same mm. thing.
0: No, oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, I take that. It doesn't to share seem well. to
1: be easy here yeah. either.
0: <laughs> I understand that. Um, uh, another another point uh, you 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 mentioned actually um, you know, reflecting on the on the last fifteen years. Uh, uh, I think you mentioned the word demographics uh, two three times, um, which you know, is not something we necessarily. Talk a lot about uh, in France or in Anglo-Saxon countries. There seems to be either you know a general feeling that it's going to be sorted out a way or another. Um, at least on the on the potential growth issue, we need to deal with pensions, obviously. But it's not seen necessarily as uh, a big issue for, for potential growth. In Germany, seems to be uh, for obvious reasons uh, uh, really pro- problematic. And I was wondering. Do you you think we can create a sort of straight line between this demographic challenge and the sort of, uh, how to say, uh, uncanny obsession for uh, fiscal stability? The idea that even if public debt in Germany is extremely low, um, the demographic situation makes it impossible to be... Uh, to be too spendthrift that there's this this acts as a sort of constant break on, on fiscal policy or is it just a view from the outside?
1: Um, no, I think it matters. It's one of the factors that matter for a lot of savings behavior or deficit assumptions in the economy and it does matter for public finance too. Um I've been a little bit obsessed with that pension scheme. Oh, not pension scheme, but with that pension theme, with that demographic aging theme. You've had since the 70s, pretty much, pension reforms that have, or pension systems that have first pushed household savings, for instance, and life insurances. Then you had uh, corporate pension schemes, um, which were used for corporate internal, I mean, the famous book reserves on on uh, corporate balance sheets, um, which have helped companies for a very long time to sort of internally finance their capex expenditures. Uh, and here we get to a stage or got to a stage in the early 2000s where suddenly, or now that the, that you have large parts of that cohort uh, that started to feed into uh, these schemes is coming to pension age. Uh, and I think that weighs on, probably on, Households, it weighs on corporate investment behavior. It also weighs on public finance because the pay-as-you-go schemes come under pressure when you have an imbalance here. So, what you do with the replacement ratios is actually also part of some of the parties' election manifestos. You want to keep, you want to commit to sort of stable replacement ratios, but they're not particularly generous in Germany compared to other European countries at the moment. Um, So, you that that does matter because it has an impact on household expectations of their pension from public pay-as-you-go schemes and it has an impact on public finance because at some stage you might have to fill a gap uh, that your general pay-as-you-go scheme can no longer fulfill. That is one of the elements. The other element is when you have a very large export share uh, by definition, your economic cycle is a function of global growth. When your economic cycle is a function of your global growth, your fiscal revenues are a function of global growth to a large extent. And that too makes you a little bit um, vulnerable to very big swings in your fiscal mm-hmm. balance um, that you might want to try to compensate, or that seemingly is trying to be compensated with discipline.
0: Actually, you know, we're getting near uh, <laughs> the election theme uh, per, per se, and, and, and the party manifestos. Uh, and you know, I don't want to make this conversation about you know, polls and, 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 and results. Uh, I want it to, to be a conversation on, on, on economics. And um, again, sitting in you know, uh, today in London uh, and looking at the debate in, in, in Germany, um, it looks a bit paradoxical in the sense that. You know, Relative to most other European countries, uh, the fiscal room for manoeuvre in Germany is absolutely massive. Um, they are competing uh, claims over this uh, uh, fiscal room for manoeuvre. Um, the need to uh, fund um, the green transition, which is going to be extraordinarily costly. Uh, those claims to maybe roll back on some of uh, the social reforms of, of 15 to 20 years ago and, and care a bit more about inclusion and, and, and equality. Uh, also calls, for instance, from the Liberals to uh, cut uh, a corporate tax, which actually is not one of the lowest in, 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 in the world by, by a fair share. Um, so you could say, looking at it from the outside, well, Yes, there are competing si- uh, competing claims, but there's enough money for everyone. But that doesn't seem to be the case uh, because the mechanics of fiscal policy in Germany uh, look very, very constrained. Uh, can you can you walk us through this?
1: Yes, uh, I'll try. It's very, very complex, and some might argue utterly boring to discuss fiscal rules and details. But basically, um, in 2009, that too falls under the Merkel era. Uh, The German parliament implemented or voted the so-called debt break, die Schuldenbremse, um, which basically means that the German federal government at federal level is no longer allowed to run deficits of larger than 0.35% of GDP in structural adjusted terms. Uh, The same rule uh, or a similar rule has been implemented at state level across Germany's federal states and was supposed to become really effective in 2020. Um, That is really the binding element. Uh, So you can argue that the debt ratio is sufficiently low, that Germany can... Has a lot of fiscal space. Financing costs are negative uh, at the moment. But it's that debt break that really kicks in. Uh, There is no space under that. We have learned in the pandemic uh, what size of shock it needs to trigger the escape clause. I think we would have all preferred not to find out. So we are currently in this extraordinary situation where the rules do not apply but they will come back and all parties seem to be on a trajectory for the rules to return in 2023. So by that time you need to pay attention that your structurally adjusted government deficit is not larger than 35 bips of GDP and that limits your fiscal choices considerably. You cannot run a 10-year 50 billion or yeah, cap, um, deficit-financed capex program if you cannot run a deficit of the equivalent size Mm. and or if you don't cut your your budget in other aspects. And that's where there is this internal inconsistency, if you want, between the the goals on the energies, on on climate policies and the fiscal rule and very many other economic challenges that we previously discussed linked to demographic aging, for instance, that Germany would have to face. But that's really a binding. It's really a (laughs) It's constitutionally enshrined. And to change that you need two-thirds in the Bundestag and in the Bundesrat, so upper and lower house of parliament, which probably none of the coalitions that seem currently arithmetically feasible will be reaching. And with so, that you are bound. Yeah.
0: So does it mean the does it mean that the the sort of consensus view at the moment on on, on the market and on the commentariat is uh, that you know, those elections don't really matter <laughs> because Germany is not going to change a lot, even if you know uh, Angela Merkel is is leaving, which is you know, obviously a sort of, of big you know, uh, shock given the, the the time she's been she, she, she she's been a chancellor. But actually, nothing much will change, whatever combination you end up with. Do you do you generally agree with that, or do you think that even Within those those constraints, uh, some some big changes could still happen.
1: Yeah, I think you have. I I agree on the general. Okay, let's put it differently. The debate around the fiscal rules has started. No, that actually started a while ago. It started before the pandemic even. Uh, so there is something going on. Um, it's just extremely difficult to change those rules, and that will take a very long time. So it they might not be here forever and ever and ever, but they will probably be here for still a very long period of time. From that perspective, in terms of big deficit trajectories or something like that, I don't think that the next government will make a big difference. But yeah, as you mentioned, there is a lot of things you can do in terms of optimizing the fiscal space, the little fiscal space you have under existing rules. You see it in some election manifestos. You know? So um, uh, actually it was the ZEW, the economic think tank in, in Mannheim, that has run a brief summary of what different parties uh, tax intentions would mean for budgets and perhaps counterintuitively you have center right uh, sorry center left parties who have tax policies that would actually increase fiscal revenues between i think it was 14 billion for the social democrats uh, and twice that for Die Linke, uh, the the left-wing party and the Greens in between those two. That would be uh, introduction of carbon. I mean, we already have a carbon tax, but the rise in the carbon tax, it would be the introduction of higher upper income um, taxes. It would be potentially the introduction of a wealth tax. And with that, you can create additional revenues that you can use for redistribution purposes, for climate policy purposes uh, that provide you fiscal space. There are other instruments that are being discussed. The Greens, for instance, are looking into cutting subsidies to energy polluters uh, or closing fiscal loopholes. So you can do a lot, perhaps mm-hmm. not enough, perhaps not the 1% to 2% that of GDP that the Commission and other uh, think tanks Put forward that you would need to do per year to get uh, to get climate policies on the right track, but there is a lot of leeway that you can still have within existing rules. Uh, it's just not the big. I mean, from a market's perspective, it's how much bond supply do you get? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's the question yeah.
0: Okay, uh, picking up on on what is in Europe as a whole and clearly in Germany as well one of the big priorities uh, of of, the next 10 to 20 years, which is the decarbonisation of of our economies. Um, I'm not going to make you you enter too much the political field, but uh, it's fairly likely that the Greens would actually be part of of any coalition. Um, And I'm trying to think about squaring uh, the sort of... uh, Conflict, if you want, between uh, very, very uh, ambitious uh, targets, goals at the European level, also at the German level, and those those limits. Because even if you explain that there are some leeways, those leeways are not necessarily that that large. And um, um, how do you think um, a party like the Greens would would want to navigate this? Because uh, we were actually in a, in a conference uh, yesterday that you organized and one of the speakers said, um, for the Greens, for instance, they will need to prove that they are a credible government party. But how do you navigate being credible in the sense of delivering your agenda with uh, actually respecting the institutional constraints and the fiscal constraints? Do you think you know, this this might be actually one of the key issues for uh, of the coming years in, in Germany?
1: I think it will be. I'm not sure you need to focus only on the Greens for that, because as you just mentioned, uh, the European the, the European Union has set forward quite tough rules. Uh, and even Germany has now acted uh, coal exit uh, by 2038, right? So um, it's something that all parties will somehow need to cope with. Uh, there have been goals that have been set and you need to achieve those. And it's Might be a bit of a conflict (laughs) between goals. I don't really know how that is going to. I don't. I don't really know how that is going to resolve. Um, For the Green Party, uh, you're right. I think. um, I mean, they were in power with Schröder at the time, so it's not the first time they would be in government. Um, But in general, if you look at German politics, all parties involved in government have to make compromises. Uh, The coalition agreement, which is formulated during the negotiation progress is quite a serious document. And it usually is a conflab of manifestos of different parties to varying degrees and intensities. Uh, And that, I think, is the first step. And we will know a lot more about the agenda of the next government and how much of the Greens manifesto, for instance, will come through once we have that document. Exante, it's extremely difficult uh, to to um to quantify the, the greens have the ambition to reform fiscal rules they are the own only party with the link but they are the only big party um who is um who are pushing for that in their manifesto but if you look at the political debates going on within germany it's actually not one of the key themes that you see discussed in press or in the various uh, election talk shows that are ongoing at the moment um it's extremely difficult to square, and you could argue some one one of the two things will have to give ultimately. When and how I really don't know.
0: So, by the way, what what is the the, the biggest thing that you know is being discussed in in, in those debates, in those in those TV shows? What, what what's the focus in 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 the German debate actually? Because we've been looking at it from maybe from a very European and, and, and global angle
1: there's a lot of things the pandemic still plays a big role at the moment then you have still you have a big focus on climate because you had the floods yeah. um but the way these things are discussed is not necessarily the way we would discuss that here uh, there is a discussion on fiscal policy there is a discussion on uh The wealth tax, higher upper income taxes, that's something where the dichotomy between the center-right and the center-left is particularly wide. Uh, Those are themes that you see recurringly in in the political discussion ongoing at the moment. Um, But again, uh, to the extent that there isn't really a clear path to a, how do I put this, to a to to a majority coalition that comes from the same side of the political center, it's Mm -hmm. not really straightforward to to see a compromise emerging in these debates at the moment. Okay. Mm.
0: I would like to spend the the last block of this conversation on on European affairs. Um, Maybe it's selfish as as a French citizen, but um, an impression, which may be more than impression, is that... uh, under under merkel uh, german policy has been has been reactive uh in in european affairs that you know uh, uh, berlin was was dragged screaming towards accepting a number of things uh during the sovereign crisis in particular that it always ended up accepting them and this is what actually allowed the eurozone to stay together um, but and I mentioned in my introduction, sort of ambivalence, I think, on the European side between constantly demanding leadership from Germany and at the same time resenting when Berlin takes things into, into its own hands. Um, would you expect a change on this, a change in, 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 the, in the German attitude to European negotiations ahead? We have big issues ahead of us. Uh, one thing, for instance, is the reform of the fiscal surveillance system for the time being it's been suspended, but you know, we don't know uh what's going to happen from 2023 onward. Uh, are we going to make the debt monetization scheme permanent? All all these things. Um obviously it's hard to to know before before the results, but do you sense uh the change of direction there?
1: Change of direction is a very big thing. So I don't I think it's quite difficult to imagine a German next German government becoming proactive on European matters there are a lot of things that are going on domestically and with political capital constrained um I I would think that the focus lies on domestic policies um mm-hmm. so from that perspective I don't, Expect a big change in the approach from reactive to proactive. And just to come back to the prior question, uh, which I should have probably ma- ma- um, mentioned, Europe is the one theme that is very little discussed mm-hmm. in the in the campaign. Um, so, so from that perspective, I really don't think we should be prepared to get a German government that as soon as the coalition is struck, will get out and say, let's change the fiscal rules or let's make NGU permanent. That I don't think will be the case. Uh, for me, um, the big issue is perhaps also the timeline. So if you look at commentators generally or even politicians themselves, the, the mention is we hope we have some coalition or some idea by Christmas. Once we get to Christmas, then you have the perhaps a German government in place. So we probably go into campaigning mode for the French elections next spring. Um, I'm not sure if you want to discuss really heavy European stuff during that timeline, um or at least not if the chance of success is not extremely high. Um, so that's that that's another complication. So for me, it's really, This window of opportunity, I think it's actually you who dubbed it that way, Um, that window of opportunity on proper European talk might open again after the French elections, uh, conditional on the outcome here. And if you then still have Draghi as PM in Italy, for instance, then why not? Then you could have two very strong actors who say we need to discuss that now. And in that case, I don't think you will have any next German government constellation that will not sit at the negotiation table. Mm -hmm. But it remains the reactive mode rather than the proactive mode.
0: Are we getting to, towards the end of our time? But I just wanted to ask you uh whether there is one super big issue that we haven't mentioned and you would you would burn to to talk about, you know, something that you know has eluded our conversation so far. Um
1: no, I think one issue that will keep us busy over the next six months or so is the renaissance theme of inflation to come back to the beginning of our conversation. I think we will have to obsess a lot, little unfortunately, a little bit more about that. Um You're worried? I'm not. Um, I'm not. Uh, Well, let's say I think the political debate could become quite tense um, around inflation. Uh, Inflation will get close to 5% later this year on the back of base effects and um, base effects, energy effects and all these things. It should correct again 2022, but there are big wage negotiations coming up next year again that have been paused. So that, um, I think wage growth normalization will be the next step to take, uh, but that could bring back all the debate that we have had pretty much since the Euro area crisis, that every sign of wage growth picking up in Germany might be interpreted as the moment at which we have the structural break and suddenly an inflation spiral kicks in. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think labor relations are structured in a way that make that very unlikely. And if you look at labor unions communication, it's the same thing. I don't think that's something in the pipeline, but I would expect that to become a theme. Mm -hmm. And then all the longer term ramifications of the pandemic, what happens to the economy? uh, But we discussed that global trade and um, challenges to the labor market, but that's less, how do I say that? That's maybe not a theme for the immediate consumption.
0: Okay. Um well yeah, it would have been weird, you know, to have an entire conversation on Germany without you know concluding on inflation worries. Um, so at least <laughs> yes. you no know, we 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 tick that box.
1: Wait, 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 um, we didn't say worries. We said others no, oh, might worry. No,
0: <laughs> monitoring, close monitoring. <laughs> yes. Um one thing before uh, I let you, you know, uh, go back to your day-to-day preoccupations, and you know, we are recording the day of the ECB. So you know, thanks a lot, Evelyn, for for taking time to to have this conversation on such a, a big day for all economists across across Europe. Um, before before we we, we leave, um, and as is now customary in in our podcast as well. Uh, would you have you know, one podcast, one you know, article, one book that you would recommend to our audience? It can be you know, linked to to what we've just discussed, or simply something you found interesting and, and has been on your on your mind recently.
1: <laughs> yes, um, I think that might make you laugh. Perhaps uh, to the theme of Germany, I really enjoyed the BBC series, the podcast on Memories of a Nation that was linked ah. to an exhibition at the British museum at the time and the ep- episode on um, uh, on german sausages is actually quite <laughs> telling <laughs> i think it's <laughs> sorry to add that stereotypical yeah, we we've
0: ticked all the boxes uh, we've element. talked about inflation and then we talk about sausages.
1: Uh, exactly no but no no but it's interesting because it's also a reminder of the federal setup i think that's quite a cool one and then on the issue of economics really one of my favorite podcast episodes is probably the big government cheese uh, on planet money okay which is about the milk price regulation um, in the us in the 70s and so those are the the two things on the podcast side that are sorry they're not very technical um, but i think from a thematic perspective quite interesting and matching
0: cool okay well let me thank you a lot evelyn for for, for your time this this morning i really hope our Audience uh, will will appreciate your your uh, as I said your insight knowledge mixed with some critical uh, distance. Uh, I think it, it, it was reflected in, in our conversation this this morning. And uh, uh, let me you know, just uh, uh, conclude on, on a very simple point. Uh, I think it's clear in our conversation that you know, you are not expecting necessarily big massive moves out of these elections, uh, but given the weight of of Germany in in European affairs and in global affairs, even small changes (laughs) matter a lot. So I'm pretty sure that we'll continue uh, monitoring this very, very closely in the the month ahead, even if we may have to wait quite some time before we have a a, a new government in in, in Germany. Thank you again, Evelyn. And uh, I uh, say Goodbye to to our audience. Uh, We'll meet again on a completely different theme uh, in about a month or now. Goodbye.